Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Uriah St. Gist. Let me wish all of you a happy Sabbath and thank you for coming to share in the word. Like the Apostle Paul says, I don't come to you like I have already attained, um, but we are all on this journey together. And I'm just here to encourage us all in our walk with Jesus as we prepare for heaven. You know, when we go to the back to pray, you may not know this, but there's a little booklet where um, we have to write our sermon title and what the theme is. And I've written for my theme, preparing for heaven. We are all preparing for heaven, aren't we? And... There are many things that we do to prepare for heaven, and this message is just a tiny morsel, a tiny drop in the inspiration that I think God wants us to have and contemplate on and make our minds up as we prepare for heaven. You know, the psalmist says that in God's presence, there is what? Fullness of joy, not just joy, but fullness of joy. And at his right hand, what do we have? Pleasures Pleasures forevermore. That's a word that we might want to be very careful with and it might scare us. But that's what the Bible says. So if we are in God's house, is there fullness of God? If he's here with us and we have come to meet with him, is there fullness of joy in God's house today? (laughs) Did somebody say no (laughs) to me? I heard a no from this side. I pray that there is. I pray that there will be fullness of joy in your hearts and it could be reflected on your faces and that you can bask in the pleasure of being in the presence of God. So while I pray before I begin, please, I invite you to pray for me and let's all pray for each other. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness towards us, Lord. We thank you for saving us, and we thank you, Father, that we are called to reflect your glory in our lives as we live for you. Father, we are all on a journey that you have called us to, which ends or culminates with being in your presence forevermore. And as we prepare for your coming and prepare for heaven, Father, I pray that this message will bless each person according to their needs. Lord, you have prepared it, and I pray that you will deliver it. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Let all God's people say, Amen. Let it go. Trust me, it has nothing to do with Frozen. But there are things that God wants us to let go of. There are things that God wants us to let go on. And we will go on a journey through God's word. 
You know, God has given us a brain, a mind, where we think, where we make decisions. It is where he interacts with us. If we think of it, this is the place where God meets with us, in our minds. And in our minds are stored many things. Things that have happened in our past, our experiences in our past, whether they are good, wonderful, um, whether they are, they are evil, our wonderful experiences with God, that moment where you met with Jesus and that light bulb entered, uh, lit up in your head and you decided that you want to follow Jesus, all of these wonderful memories are stored in our minds. But they are not only wonderful memories, there are some sad memories that we may want to forget. One man said to his friend, why do you look so depressed? What are you thinking about? And his friend's response was, I'm thinking about my future. And he says, what makes it look so hopeful if you're thinking of your future? Or hopeless? Why are you hope You're thinking of your future. Why are you so depressed and looking so hopeless? He says, because I'm thinking of my past. God wants us to let go. Now, when we all, I think most of us here drive, if you're adults, in your vehicles, when you sit in your car or truck or whatever you drive and you look forward, there are two pieces of glass. One is hang up in the front. It's a very tiny piece, a small piece, probably about this wide. And what is the function of this? It's called the what? A rare view mirror. It is there so you can look behind. And as if you're driving, it, you look at what you have passed, the things that are behind you. But there's a bigger piece of glass called the windscreen. That one is a lot bigger. And this is where you look at where you're going. You are looking forward. So the review mirror is for you to look back and this windscreen is for you to look bigger. And there's a reason why the windscreen is bigger than the review mirror. Because when you're driving, you are supposed to look ahead much more than you look behind. I want to share with you uh, 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 something that almost happened to me. I was driving, now this was about a few days, I believe, if my memory serves me right, before I began an evangelistic uh, series in, in, um, in Jesmond in Newcastle. And I'm driving along, I think it's called um, um, Stockton Road, is it? Near the swimming pools in Morissette. And if you know that road very well, right in front of the um, PCYC, just before you get to the pools, there's a little bit of a rise in the road. Now, I'm driving. There's lots of things on my mind. I'm preparing for this evangelistic series, a lot of organizing to do. But for some reason, my mind strayed. And what was I thinking of? Something totally irrelevant. I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not seeing, or I'm seeing, I'm not seeing as many cars today with tow balls behind them than when I first came to Australia. And I said, okay, let me, let me count. So every vehicle that passes me, I actually look in the rearview mirror to see whether it has a, a tow ball or not. And I, as far as I was concerned, there was nothing in front of me. 
and I, the car passes, I look in the rearview mirror, it seems like only one or two seconds. When I looked forward, there was a black BMW SUV that had stopped for another vehicle in front of it that was turning right. And I realized that no matter how hard I hit those brakes, I did not have enough space to stop and I would have crashed right into that vehicle. And it would have been a very bad day, not just for me or my car or the lady's car, but most of all, I felt that it would have been a terrible day for this innocent lady who was doing the right thing, but I was too busy looking back. And as much as I like to think my skill in driving saved the day, I know that it was God who sent an angel to turn the steering wheel to the right so that I did not crash into that vehicle and stopped the car that was coming from the other way, probably pushed it back further so that I didn't crash into that oncoming car. The writer and preacher Warren Risby, he says, do not say, why were the former days better than these? He says, you do not move ahead by constantly looking in a rearview mirror. And I want to suggest to you, please, when you're driving, keep your eyes on the road. Look at where you are going. It's a very dangerous thing to be staring at the rearview mirror or keeping your eyes off of where you are going. He says, the past is a rudder to guide you, not an anchor to drag you. Now, the Bible is filled with verses that encourage us to remember. One of the ones that I think we love the most as Seventh-day Adventists is what? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So in God's word, God often calls us to reflect on the past. But he does not want us to live in the past. Some of my favorite verses, there are a couple I want to share with you about, about when God asks us to, to, to remember. Isaiah 46 verse 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee thy elders and they will tell thee. God definitely wants us to to remember the past, to reflect on the past, to not forget how he has led us and his wonderful workings in our history. And that's why we have the Bible, which is filled with stories of things that have happened in the past. But he does not want us to, to live there. 
And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, where he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. This one thing that I am doing now in the present, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He says, I press. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling which is in Christ Jesus. This is where God wants us to dwell. Pressing on to our destination, our heavenly destination in the present. He does not want us to dwell in the past. He does not even want us to stand firm on our past religious experiences because every day we ought to ask God for a fresh anointing. We ought to rededicate our lives to him and not just trust in that commitment that we made 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, whatever it might be for you. But in the present, we are to continuously press, press onwards, onwards. And that's the one thing he says that he's doing now. But I want to turn your attention to the plains of Jordan, the site of the Dead Sea. This, what you can see on the screen, they call that rock outcrop that's jutting out, they actually call it Lot's Wife. This famous or infamous woman in the Bible with no name. She is simply referred to as Lot's wife. And what is she known for? She is known for looking back or turning back. And the Bible says she turned into a pillar of salt. In today's world, what she did probably would look like something like this. <laughs> While she's fleeing Sodom, she says, let me, you know, in today's world, we would be smart. We would say, no, we're not turning back, but let me take a selfie. And you know the things about selfies? One, they're selfies. They're all about self. And usually, if someone is at an amazing site, a beautiful site, you visit the Statue of Liberty or Niagara Falls or whatever, you don't just take a picture looking forward of the site where you're not in it. But what do you do? Turn your back towards the site with your phone and you take a selfie so that yourself and the beautiful scenery is also in the picture. Looking back. And that's what Lot's wife was known for. I'm not saying that selfies are bad and you shouldn't take them, but 
sometimes people are obsessed with selfies and the Instagram generation where it's all about me and it's all about look how good I am and look at how good my life is when perhaps that's not the entire picture at all. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 19. And we will begin with verse 17. Genesis chapter 19, verse 17. The angels have visited Lot and his family and have instructed them, are giving them instructions to leave that corrupt city where they are surrounded by evil men. Verse 17, the instruction, so it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. This is serious stuff. It's a matter of life and death. And the instruction is, do not look behind you. So what she did, although it might seem very drastic, very draconian for God to instantly punish her this way, God had given them a clear instruction, a clear command through the angel. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay Anywhere in the plain, escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Now, if you know the story of Lot and Abraham very well, you would know that Abraham, being very gracious and generous, allowed Lot to choose. And Lot chose what in his eyes seemed to be the the choicest, Lands, the the plains. But he did not see the spiritual danger. He did not take his time to assess the wickedness of the people who were there. All he could see was the wealth that he could generate from the rich and fertile plains. And it is this very thing that God is asking him to leave behind. Stay nowhere. Do not stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains or else you will be destroyed. God wants us to leave behind the the, the rich and fertile plains. The things that seem to on the surface in the physical sense, to be so juicy and so attractive and so rich and so good for us. He wants us, when we are choosing, to look deeper and look at the spiritual significance, the spiritual impact on our choices, because, my friends, brothers and sisters, friends, we are not citizens of this world. We are on a journey to our heavenly home. And so he wants us to develop new appetites. He wants us to develop 
a taste for him instead of a taste for the things of this world that are not good for us. He wants us to develop an appetite for the things that are good. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 34 verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's not a picture of me when I was that age. But I can tell you what, I've had many of those experiences. And that's how you eat a mango, not with a knife. That takes too long. By the time you cut it and I see people dice it up so nicely when you cut a piece off and then you flip it on all the cubes. Takes too long. If it's good, if it's juicy, if God is good and he's inviting you to taste into him, he wants you to plunge your teeth into him and consume him. Make him part of your life. Now let me tell you a little story again. I want to introduce you to a mango. This mango is the best mango in the whole entire world. Everyone's quiet because you disagree. You say, no, these calypsos or Bowen mangoes. You say, Pastor, you haven't tasted a Bowen mango? Yes, I have. This is the best mango in the world. It's called a Julie mango. It's only found, I think, in the Caribbean. Now, there might be somebody who say, ah, oh, from somewhere else in the world. I know this mango. We have it wherever. Well, if you know where to get one, please check me out. Whenever I eat a mango in Australia, I weep. <laughs> I weep and I remember the Julie mango. The Julie mango is so precious. In St. Lucia, where I was born and I was raised, there's actually a law that makes it a criminal offense to, to steal Julie mangoes. Apart from the general larceny laws, there's a special law that imposes a special sentence on people who still steal Julie mangoes. That's how precious they are. And I go to the supermarkets here. And I see one mango for about three or four dollars. And I weep. Because they don't even taste that good. I've only had about two or three experiences with mangoes here that made me hit the roof. Because they almost tasted like Julie mangoes. Now I know you didn't come here to hear about Julie mangoes or mangoes. You came to hear a word from God. The thing is, my friends... I am not longing for the time when I'll be eating a Julie mango again. I'm not going back. I'm pressing forward. I'm looking for the time when I'll be sitting under the tree of life. And it says that there will be um, different, every month is a different fruit. That's the fruit that I'm looking forward to eat. As much as I love Julie mangoes. There is something better that my heart is set to. And God wants us to develop that taste, that appetite for the things that are good. From now, from here. And that's why I love um, Ken in the, in the Sabbath school that you said that eternal life is ours now. Not just something to attain in the future. 
but it is ours now. And so he wants us to develop a taste for things that are good. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, we know it very well. What does he want us to develop a taste for? He wants us to develop a taste for the things that are true. And today, it is more difficult. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, as Protestant Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, the truth is very important to us. Yes? Extremely important to us. We came into this message because we discovered the truth. We discovered that we were believing a lie for a long time and we found the truth. And we decided to follow Jesus all the way into his truth. But Jesus warns us when you read Matthew chapter 24 and the disciples ask about the signs of his coming. The first thing that he says is deception. And this word is repeated throughout this chapter. And today it seems to be more difficult to know what is true and what is not true. But God wants us to develop the truth. And I say to you that the truth is attainable. It is knowable. You can find the truth because Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is not information on a piece of paper. Truth is not information on a website. Truth is a person. Amen. That is Jesus. And that's what he wants us to develop that thirst for. He wants us to develop a taste for things that are honest, for things that are just and pure and lovely and of good report. As we journey to heaven, these are the things that he wants us to cling to and to never go back. Lot's wife turned back in verse 23 and 26 of Genesis 19. Even though the commander's specific instruction was given to them, that they are not to turn back, not to look behind. But she failed. Verse 23, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. Then the Lord raised brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So, he overthrew the, those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But, so here, Lot and his family, they have escaped out of the plains. They are secure. They're out. They are separated from the place where destruction is taking place. But that's only physically separated. The people who remained in the plains, they are being destroyed. They are being affected by the fire and brimstone that God is raining as his judgment upon that city. And all the people who are in the plains. And they have left. But. Verse 26. 
his wife looked back behind him. It's not that his wife looked at his back, but she was walking behind him when she turned back. And that suggests to me that there seemed to have been an unwillingness. She seemed to have been dragging her feet, walking behind and and dwelling on the things that were in Sodom and Gomorrah that she had been leaving behind. And she turned back. And she became a pillar of salt. The Bible says, Now, the Bible does not mention why Mrs. Lot turned back. Whatever you know is the reason why she turned back. The Bible does not say directly. It doesn't say here. Can we know why? Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition, Tradition, meaning that's what they believed. We don't know where it came from, but there is a Jewish tradition that suggests a reason. And the tradition is that when the angels came to visit Lot and his family, they asked for salt. We don't know if it's true, but the Jews believed it. And it was considered bad luck to give someone salt from your own household. So the tradition says that she went to the neighbor's house and sought salt from them to give to the angels. And that suggests that she was possessive according to Jewish traditions, what they believe. That she was, possess- she was possessive of her own possessions. She wanted to keep her own uh, property secure. But wanted to deplete the resources of her neighbor. And that suggests that there was an attachment that she placed on her own possessions. Now you may say, well, we don't know if that's true, Pastor. That's It's probably not. Why are you saying this? Why are you bringing this to us, Pastor? Well, if it was Jewish tradition that explains why Lot's wife turned back, Jesus probably had heard about this. And in speaking to his audience in Luke chapter 17, now if you are a student of the Bible, you will know that Luke chapter 17, Jesus gives, he talks about the signs of his second coming. The things that will happen in the last days. And there is a verse in Luke chapter 17 that Um, I believe ties as second place as the shortest verse in the Bible. Three words. It's in red in my Bible. These are the words of Jesus. In the midst of all of the signs. 
In verse 31, I will read verse 31. I will jump the verse that I'm referring to, skip it, and read the, the next two verses. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house. He who is where? Luke 17, 31. He who is on the housetop and what? His? His what? So, well, well, that's what happens when we have many different versions. Did I hear somebody say his stuff? Yes. His goods, his stuff, his possessions are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed and one will be taken and one will be left. Sounds very familiar like Matthew 24, which we know is the great chapter on the signs of the second coming. So why on earth in the midst of speaking about the second coming, the last days and the signs and the warning signs, do we have verse 32 where Jesus makes no connection. He simply blurts out, remember Lot's wife. And then he moves on. Where's the connection, Jesus? Jesus would have known at least the people believed the reason why Lot's wife turned back. Even though the Bible doesn't mention why. And it was because she was concerned about her possessions. In fleeing the destruction of Sodom and grabbing onto salvation, on her mind were her possessions and she could not let go of them. It's beautiful. Beautiful passage, beautiful speech that Jesus gives here. I love it. He's talking about in the last days. Don't cling to your possessions. Don't even come down to take them away. Run. Don't cling to them. And then he says, remember Lord's wife. She turned back. This is in the context of the last days that we are to remember Lord's wife. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple of morsels from the pen of inspiration. The first one speaks directly to the reason why Lot's wife turned back. And there is words for us in this quotation. And I like the Conflict of the Ages series because it, it fleshes out the Bible, the best commentary on the Bible that has ever been written. And in Patriarchs and Prophets, Page 161, referring to Lot's wife's, the comment, her comment on Lot's wife turning back. While her body was upon the plain, her heart clung to Sodom. 
and she perished with it. Where is your heart this morning, this afternoon? She rebelled against God because his judgments involved her possessions and her children in the ruin. Although greatly favored in being called out from the wicked city, she felt that she was severely dealt with because the wealth that had taken years to accumulate. She worked hard. This was her nest egg that she had been preparing. And it was to be left to destruction. Instead of thankfully accepting deliverance, instead of looking forward to the deliverance that she was receiving, she presumptuously looked back to desire the life of those who had rejected the divine warning. And she's this referring to our material possessions. Sometimes, if we are not careful, our material possessions, and notice she even says here, her children. That's very sad. And I don't dare comment on it, but it's there. Think of it. What is our relationship with our possessions? The things that are important to us, that are material. You know, Jesus also speaks of when he was, uh, after he had the encounter with the rich young ruler. What did he say to his disciples? He said, it is easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into his kingdom. And often we might think that this is hyperbole. This is, you know, Jesus is exaggerating. He's talking about uh, the animal, the camel, and a needle that, that we sew with. No. There was a particular gate in the wall of the city of Jerusalem that was called the needle. And there's a reason for it. You know, the gates, the uh, cities back then relied on walls for their protection and their security. I mean, if you didn't have a wall, you were vulnerable to attack. But if you have a wall, it's more difficult for the enemy to penetrate. Are you with me? But people needed to go in and out, especially tradespeople who brought goods in from other parts of the land, Tradesmen, merchants, rich, wealthy merchants would enter the city to exchange these goods for money. And the city would have gates. Now, the gate is the most vulnerable part of the defense. If the gates open, wide open, then an entire army can march through. And so what they did was there was the gate was very broad, but at, on evenings they would shut the gate the big gate, but there would be a little door that they called the needle that allowed people to enter and exit. 
picture this with me, this merchant who just misses the deadline and the gate is shut and he has this, his entire goods, he wants to get to the market early and get the best position for his goods to get the most money. But the gate is shut and all that is open is the needle. And he has his camel with all of his possessions, his goods, so much that they are bulging towards the sides of the camel. And he's trying to get that camel to enter the city. He's pushing from behind. It doesn't work. He tries to pull from in front. It doesn't work. Nothing he does can get that heavy laden camel through that tiny door to enter the city. And you are standing there and you just want to shout out to him what? Take off all the stuff. Let go of all those goods. And you and the camel can easily enter into the city. But he does not want to let go. Because these things mean too much for him. He would rather risk being left out of the city. Than to let go of his possessions. Now if you think this is only limited to your house and land and the money that you have in the bank, think again. Think again. Here's another quote. This is the last one and I will end. It's found in Messages to Young People and a few other places. It's quoted. And we know it very well. A character... Now if we just read... And that's what a lot of us do. We only read the verses that are in bold. We say a character, our character is the only thing we can take to heaven. Have you ever said that? That's not what she wrote. If you say your character is the only thing that you'll take to heaven, that's so wrong. Because if I have an evil character, I'm not going to take that with heaven to heaven with me. What she wrote was a character formed according to the divine likeness is the only treasure that we can take from this world to the next. Your character that you have consecrated to God, the sanctification that the Holy Spirit does in your heart, that's all you can take to heaven. That's all you can take to heaven. Can't take it to the grave. You know, one of the most powerful points in the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, the queen that we have all known throughout our lives, one of the richest women in the world, and one of the most powerful, and she was crowned in 1953. And I'm sure you noticed if you watched that everywhere her coffin went, that crown was there. And I'm saying to myself, even in death, she's still the queen and she's still wearing that crown. That's the message they wanted to send, right? But did you notice that point just before the burial? A strange man, I remember seeing it and I, I had to rewind. Who was this person? We don't even know. He wasn't adorned in any kind of royal regalia. He was just a 
common man, and it seemed like he had a screwdriver. And it seemed he went up to the crown and he unscrewed something. And there was a point when the symbols of her authority and her power and her wealth, that crown is worth millions. It's priceless as, I'm, as far as I'm told. It was removed. It was placed where it came from. And her body went into the ground just like it came into this world. And that struck me. We leave with nothing. All of the things that we work so hard to cultivate. And just as Ellen White referred to Lot's wife's children, not even our children who are old enough can we take with us to heaven. They have to make up their own minds. That character formed according to the likeness of, G- of, of Jesus should be the treasure that we treasure most. Because that's all we take to us, with us to heaven. But I'm not done yet. Because there's, there are a couple of sentences after this one that you don't even know about. Because you've probably you've read it, but it doesn't stick in your head. The next sentence says, those who are under the instruction of Christ in this world will take every divine attainment with them to the heavenly mansions. Every victory over sin, every good habit that you have formed, that's what you will take with you to heaven. These are the treasures we ought to cultivate or we ought to make our first priority because all the rest will be left behind. And in case you are misguided to believe that that character development will be complete before Jesus comes, There's the next sentence. And in heaven we are continually to improve. It's a work that is begun now. Throughout eternity we'll be studying the love of of God. And we will be drawn closer to him day by day. Throughout eternity. And so there is some stuff that God wants us to let go of right now. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. And by God's grace, I'm working on them day by day. And I will continue to improve throughout eternity. There's a poem that was written called The Balance Sheet of Life. I'm not going to read you the entire poem, but it talks about some stuff, good and bad. The most destructive habit, worry. The greatest joy, giving. 
The greatest loss, the loss of self-respect. The most satisfying work helping others. The ugliest personality trait, selfishness. The most endangered species, a dedicated leader. Our greatest natural resource, our youth. The greatest shot in the arm that we can get, the greatest vaccine that we can get is encouragement. The greatest problem to overcome, fear. The most effective sleeping pill is peace of mind. The most crippling failure, the most crippling failure disease is excuse. The most powerful force in life is love. The most dangerous pariah is gossip. The world's most incredible computer is the brain. The worst thing to be without is hope. The deadliest weapon, the tongue. The two most powerful words, I can. The greatest asset, faith. The most worthless emotion is self-pity. The most beautiful attire is your smile. The most prized possession is integrity. The most powerful channel of communication is prayer. The most contagious spirit is enthusiasm. And the most important thing in life is God. Cling to him. This message was made available by the Dora Creek Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit doracreek.church. Fountainview Academy will now sing... Higher Ground.
Hello folks, lovely to be with you again today, William Macklin speaking. Today I would like to talk to you about rivers. Like a liquid serpent, the river snakes its way following the path of least resistance until finally it empties its watery burden into the surging sea. Rivers turn a crispy, dry landscape into lush pastures for animals to quietly grace and enjoy the blessings water brings. Rivers, by their very nature, move water from its trickling or oozing source across hundreds or thousands of miles of countryside to eventually mix its fresh water with the salty ocean. Other small waterways, be they creeks, brooks or streams, do something similar but for shorter distances than their mighty big brother, the river. Creeks may merely run over a farmer's land into a dam he has made. The bubbling brook, a slightly bigger sibling, features in more poems than any other watercourse. And streams are nearly rivers but are not quite there yet. Creeks, brooks and streams usually empty into a river or lake, whereas only rivers' vast source of water dares to empty their load of H2O into farther ocean or sea. Without water, of course, rivers and those smaller watercourses I have mentioned are only ruts in the landscape, not much good for anything really. Some rivers in drier countries and continents are always empty and dry in the summer or extended drought periods, but then fill with raging water when the rains come. The Fink River, or as we say these days, Larapinta, in central Australia, is an example of such a river. Most rivers never stop flowing, and the mightiest of all, the Amazon, in northern South America, carries such a vast quantity of water into the Atlantic Ocean, its water is still fresh 200 miles out to sea. Roe River in Montana, USA, is the world's shortest river, running for a distance of only 201 feet, or 61 metres. Now that's a short river. The world's three longest rivers are all over 6,000 kilometres. The Amazon is 6,992 kilometres. The Nile is 6,853 kilometres. And the Yangtze is 6,300 kilometres in length. Of these, the Amazon is not dammed due to the surrounding terrain, but the Nile and the Yangtze are, providing huge amounts of water for domestic consumption and industrial use. One of the attractive features of rivers is the vegetation, large and small, that flourishes beside its banks. The river gums, beside Australia's Murray, are full of character and have, in fact, been the subject of many landscape paintings over the years. Many giant trees do not grow beside rivers, though, but still require a good rainfall to promote their growth. For example, in southwest Western Australia, southern Victoria, and in the prime treed areas of Tasmania. Humans use rivers for water storage, for transport, recreation, irrigation, industrial and commercial use, and for other purposes I'm sure you can call to mind. Many of the rivers have those special boats known as paddle steamers seen on their waters that in the past were prime means of travel up and down the Mississippi and the Murray, to name just two. Nowadays, though, these never-say-die vessels 
usually carry holiday makers or day trippers, anxious to enjoy a day or a week or two on the water. There is just something about water in its many forms that appeals to people. The Bible refers to rivers quite a deal, including in the very last chapter, Revelation 22, where in verse 1 it states, Then the angel showed me the river of life, as clear as crystal, for it contained nothing impure. It flowed from the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. We cannot imagine a world without rivers, even though some make jokes about them, to wit, Sydney ciders when referring to Melbourne's Yarra, flowing upside down, they say. The fact is, we cannot do without water. And when rivers do the convenient thing and bring water to us, then who are we to deny their service? This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.